Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Thanks again, Victor, for coming on the podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself to the audience. Cool. So I'm Victor. Professionally, I work in strategy and planning at Uber. Before that, I started an online art marketplace centered on commissioning custom art. I spent some time working as a consultant in the Middle East, where I largely focused on projects in culture, art, and tourism. And then now, outside of work, I live in Philadelphia, and I volunteer with SCORE, which is an affiliate of the Small Business Administration, where I help coach and volunteer supporting small businesses in the Philadelphia and kind of Pennsylvania area. Okay. Let's look back at your online auction. Like, What led to you coming up with that idea? How the idea actually came around... My brother was looking to commission a custom piece of jewelry for his wife and was having a really tough time figuring out a way to do that. He wanted some sort of necklace with like specific materials and some specific shape. Couldn't figure that out. And then he was thinking through, I wonder what other industries this applies to. And art is what jumped out to mind. Just kind of, I think, larger industry overall in terms of value or pieces transacted and just generally an industry that we are more familiar with. So with... That kind of idea, light bulb moment in mind, we decided to just give it a shot. We reached out to something like 500 artists, asking them if they would be interested in working on a platform for commissioning custom art on the consumer side, surveyed to see what kind of pieces or average price points customers would be comfortable with. And then, yeah, went straight for it, launched the website and worked on that full time for about a year. Okay. So as someone who's recently started a company as well, could you talk to me about your growth cycle there when you first started the company? Like what surprised you? What surprises? I think the aspect of the growth cycle in just subsequent couple of months after a launch was how linear our growth was, which retrospectively makes a little bit of sense. Our approach to launching and getting awareness was largely focused on spend on... Facebook, on Google search engine, marketing, so on and so forth, where we had something like $20,000 worth of art requested in the first month of our launch, which we were like baffled by. We were like, wow, what a just a testament to how great of an idea this is. But then the month after that, the same volume came through. And then the month after that, the same volume came through. And we had just a very linear growth, which isn't a super inspiring growth story, because especially at that stage, when you're trying to get kind of venture capital investment or yeah, venture investment more broadly, you're looking for growth that is something like exponential or just compounding. So yeah, to answer your question, what surprised us? I think positively how quickly things took off in the beginning and then negatively how consistently our growth remained linear in the following couple of months there. How long was it linear before you realized that that was going to be a problem? It was linear for... The duration of the seed funding that we or pre-seed funding that we had raised. So yeah, we were trying to raise a seed round. And the two questions that we continuously would get were something along the lines of your growth is linear, we're looking for more rapid growth, which kind of was a bit of a, a circular reference because we at that point would have needed more funding to be able to grow more quickly. Yeah. And then the second question, which is a little bit unrelated to what you asked, is just uh we don't see this being a $10 billion industry or like a giant, giant industry that like makes this a suitable investment for venture capital. But probably I would say like five, six months of linear growth until we drastically tried to pivot our customer acquisition model, which 
that pivot didn't exactly work. And we unfortunately had to shut the business down. I see. Looking back, would you have done anything differently? Or do you think that was just a, a full necessary lesson to go through? Yeah, there were a couple of things. So I, I think concretely would have focused probably a little bit more on organic growth, organic word of mouth, basically not customer acquisition that's driven directly through some pay-per-click type of method that isn't going to get any more efficient or not substantially more efficient with time. So again, I was saying that like we invested in Google search engine marketing. Yeah. We effectively paid, let's say, I don't know, $50 for every $15 of sales that would come through our platform, which not a great business. And the way we had been running the business, we should have focused more on bringing that $50 down substantially much earlier on, which I don't think would have foreseeably happened with the levers that we were pulling of very traditional marketing methods. That would be, I think, probably the piece that would have changed earlier on in terms of a, a very concrete, different approach to take. Would you do that again? Would you be open to doing an online art auction again? Yes, but I think it would take maybe a different flavor that I haven't really thought through would be the right solution. To give you just a little bit more detail on how specifically we ran our business. So we were focused on art commissioning, which is a customer will request a very specific... They'll say, I want a painting of my dog. And then we made it a little bit easier by having kind of pre-chosen selections of dimensions of artistic style, so on and so forth. Artists would see that request that the customer has put on the website and then respond to the request saying, I'm the right artist for this, that, and the other reason. Then multiple artists would respond. So it was a bit of a more niche play. The rationale in taking the more niche play was we didn't think that anybody had built up a sizable network effect on that specific approach to art commissioning. So our plan was to build a solid network good economic moat, ideally by virtue of that. And then if a larger player wanted to come in and buy us as opposed to building the network themselves, then that'd be one one approach to a happy ending, I guess, in that story. I don't think I would try it again with the exact model that we had in mind. I'm sure art is a $70 billion industry. There has to be some viable spin to that, but I, that, I have not it. Yeah, I'm impressed by your creativity there. You kind of started your own multi-sided platform, it sounds like, right. which is, makes you the perfect fit to be working where you where you are right now. Let's look at your your pivot then going from that, you know, being an entrepreneur and then going into consulting in Dubai. Yeah. Sounds like quite a jump. Like, could you build that bridge for us? Yeah, it is a jump. But at the same time, it, it wasn't that much of a jump just because part of my pathway into consulting, I worked for a monitor going. Part of my pathway there was the focus on culture and art because those were the types of projects that I ultimately ended up focusing on. So after the business failed and we shut it down, I guess from a professional experience perspective, I just wanted a more well-rounded background. I thought consulting was a great fit for that. I wanted to work internationally and thought the Middle East was a great fit for that because there's no local language requirements and just you a whole host of countries to travel to once you're there. And then, yeah, when I was doing my networking, I kind of described my background to folks who just cold outreach on LinkedIn to consultants in the region. And coincidentally, I didn't know it at the time, but the Middle East is going through a very robust investment in culture and artistic offerings. The Middle East broadly is, is very focused on diversifying their economies from oil, and then also just broadly improving quality of life and touristic offerings for folks who are living there and visiting there. And then art is a great channel for that. So unbeknownst okay. to me, 
as of like maybe let's say 2015, there's been this very, very aggressive focus on how do we build museums? How do we make public arts more of a thing? How do we make art more financially viable? And then I just coincidentally kind of caught the, the tailwind of that. That's cool. I saw something similar happen in Japan in the first decade of the century in particular, and into the, the, the last decade, there were fashion stores that commissioned famous architects to design uh, gorgeous buildings that they dedicated the top suite or top floor to world-class artists to have like shows and stuff like that. So they're kind of like conflating or combining rather art, fashion, and architecture, like all in one space. And the galleries were free almost always. So you could just like walk into these places and enjoy the beauty of both the the space and the framing of it, the building. But it, it connects to like kind of what you're talking about with the art and kind of being a, a vehicle into a new place. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I didn't know that. So back to you. So what's it like uh, going to Dubai? Was there like any kind of culture shock? It sounds like maybe not being that it's very kind of cosmopolitan. But could you walk us through like an American in Dubai? What's that like? Yeah, for sure. So I think Dubai out of... Most of the major cities in the Middle East would be the one that like you'd actually get the least culture shock going to. It's not exactly like Miami, but like it, if if there were a city to be like Miami in the Middle East, it would definitely be Dubai. Something like I'm blanking if it's 85 or 90 percent of the population is actually non-native, so it's wow folks who aren't Emirati. It's a very yeah exactly. That's like the inverse of Japan. Yeah, yeah. So. You have a whole host of nationalities. You're actually going to have a tougher time in Dubai not speaking English than not speaking Arabic. Like okay. business is generally conducted in English. Yeah. And, and I think Dubai is very much a place that if you go to, you'll get a balance of kind of Western culture and then also some native, I'll say Emirati, but like more broadly Middle Eastern type of offerings. And it, it sort of makes sense also because like Dubai, I think, has been the most forward looking in the region in terms of how do we diversify our, our economy from oil and has been yeah probably the most adamant in let's be, build the biggest the best the things that will make folks travel from across the world to come to this place which yeah just leads itself to like a very dynamic and, and very robust city so sounds like they were able to make their growth exponential do you think they they got off that linear cycle i think they did especially yeah, Dubai is a really interesting place to me. I, I think a lot of folks get surprised with out of the oil reserves that are in like the United Arab Emirates, 95% of them are actually controlled by Abu Dhabi. So like Dubai isn't a super huh. oil endowed emirate within the context of the UAE. It's in okay. Abu Dhabi. So with that in mind, they're like, okay, how do we, what do we do? What's our big thing to like make our mark on the world? And that's come through the form of, you know, Burj Khalifa, world's biggest building, right. world's biggest everything is probably in Dubai. Okay. So you went there into Monitor Deloitte and and there to learn lessons, to make you more well-rounded as a business person, as an entrepreneur. Did it work? And if so, what did you learn? That's a good question. What did I learn? I think on just like a cultural level, it was a really cool experience working with a whole host of of folks who otherwise I don't think I would have gotten the chance to. I, I mentioned it when we were talking about demographics of Dubai, but like teams that I worked in were incredibly multinational, which was a great experience. So I'd be in Saudi Arabia working with a team that is somebody from the United States, somebody from the UK, two people from Lebanon, one person from Germany. So just getting like, you get a whole host of experience of how business is conducted in a bunch of different countries, just very formally through interactions with your colleagues, which 
I always found to be amazing. It's really cool also getting a glimpse into what's top of mind within an industry in a different country. So like working with some of the cultural and touristic industries in Saudi Arabia in particular, it was just a great pleasure seeing like how focused and resourced those organizations were in terms of putting Saudi Arabia higher up on kind of the touristic totem pole of the world. Yeah, and I think just in general, one of my takeaways is that people are more similar than dissimilar, which sometimes it takes having to move and work in a completely different place to realize that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Same here. But in terms of business, though, like, could you talk us through like something that uh, sticks in your mind? Like, you could only learn that at Monitor Deloitte. I interviewed uh, Vice Chair of Deloitte here, and he says there's an expression. I don't know if it's like within Deloitte globally or just within Deloitte in Canada. But they, he says they they often say like only at Deloitte, like only at Deloitte could you have learned this or done that or something. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of marketing, but I was curious, like, is there anything that stands out like, you know, that could only have happened because you were at Monitor Deloitte? I think I'm going to layer on a combination of like projects that I worked on at Monitor Deloitte with the okay. elements of being in the Middle East, because I think there were a lot sure. of things that we worked on that like... Only in the Middle East. Only in Monitor Deloitte. Okay. So, yeah, I think there were lots of times where we were thinking very much from the ground up, like with limited data. An example of this is like we were trying to do, trying to figure out what is like the industry sizing for different types of art within the Middle East, which is like such a tough question because like the data for that is very limited. And it takes a lot of creative approaches to thinking, like almost consulting interview type of logic to arrive at some of these things. So, yeah, I think the experiences that stuck out to me were having to think of very concrete approaches to conducting business or quantifying industries that basically don't exist or are incredibly nascent having worked in art. So like I mentioned one example of a project where you're figuring out the kind of economic value of different aspects of art, whether that's like visual arts, whether that's auctioning, whether that's, I don't know, insert kind of third category of art here. Working in Saudi Arabia, the government was very focused on investing in different sectors of art. And you're thinking through, where do we start? Which sector is first? And a lot of these sectors hadn't really existed before. You're kind of building them from the ground up. So like a lot of putting very regimented thinking into aspects of business that have very limited data and are somewhat subjective by nature, I think was like the really cool takeaway experience that I think would have only been possible on those projects at that time in those countries. You were an art consultant in Monitor Deloitte. That sounds fascinating. (laughs) Like, how lucky are you? And also, how do you value art? Like some of the stuff you see, like the Picasso is now valued at like 70 million or something like that, or Van Gogh. And people seem surprised because it's in the news. So that meant that they didn't anticipate it being that high. So how do you predict that? It's a really good question. I mean, to give you like a not very real answer, I'd say art is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. But I mean, in many cases, it's like any other commodities. It is a function of supply and demand, especially when you get to investment grade art. So when you're talking about like pieces that are like 10, 20, 30 million dollars, a lot of the times they are actually treated as investments. And that's, that's something that like we've seen becoming an increasing trend in particular throughout COVID, but like in the late 2010s, where you have platforms that offer art as an investment or you can invest in art fractionally. You know, you can own. Yeah. What's that one called? 
master masterworks is yeah okay yeah that's someone that you're thinking of so like you can own you know one ten thousand of those uh, right. ten million dollar paintings and sell yeah. when that painting gets old in five years then you get your fair share of that but I do think it's yeah some combination of like what's going on in like the macroeconomic backdrop yeah just supply and demand for particular pieces it's cool like I think it's very similar to many other luxury items you looked at like the prices of watches throughout COVID also followed yeah. a similar trends and things that we think of as like something that goes into our living room or in a jewelry box trend very similar to commodities more broadly yeah pretty interesting so you're kind of like using proxies to determine a value range? Yeah, I think that like, I would say if you're trying to forecast out, I think that that would be a fair case. Yeah, I think if you're doing this in a forward-looking fashion, that would probably be the way to go about it. In terms of like taking a snapshot right now, uh-huh. the way that I feel like I've generally gone by is a more simple kind of like, how many pieces do we think are getting sold times? What do we think the average price using some sort of benchmark or auction records or whatever we can scrape from the internet type of approach. Yeah. Well, and also like if there's 10 Van Goghs and you make a case for buying nine of them, I imagine (laughs) that the value would go up. Yeah, I could see that being the case. Okay. Interesting. So is that pretty much what you worked on in in the Middle East or did you switch over to different industries as well? That was most of it. I would say that I spent, yeah, like maybe 80% of my time on those projects. They came in different shapes and forms. So for example, in the UAE, I actually worked on setting up I don't want to use the term e-commerce, but like a very all-encompassing platform for selling art, for viewing art, for buying tickets to museums, so on and so forth. And that, that felt like a little bit of a redemption round on my personal entrepreneurial experience. In Saudi Arabia, we were helping set up an investment fund that would deploy a pretty substantial amount of money across different artistic sectors in Saudi Arabia just to really rapidly grow artistic offerings and also make art more financially viable within the country, which was a really cool project to work on because that was very kind of building some of the groundwork for hopefully artistic growth in the future. Yeah. So what led to you like not doing that anymore? What is it just like time for a change or did the market change over there and you needed to pivot out? I would say it actually probably falls more in like personal category than professional. So like COVID hit, which, you know, I'm living abroad, working remotely now from a one bedroom apartment, eight hours separated from like my friends and family. And we were in the same boat. I was in Japan when it hit. So yeah. Right. Okay. So you get it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that was certainly one piece of it. And then that kind of just wanting to come back. Also, I, I felt like some of the allure of being able to travel to cool places like you get to spend a weekend in Kuwait. That also goes out the window when you have a pandemic. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think just wanting to try something slightly different professionally. So some of the experiences that I had in the Middle East, particularly around, yeah, some of the e-commerce bits that I was describing translated to what I'm currently doing at Uber. Okay. So you moved from Dubai and monitored Deloitte, the art industry, and now you're okay. at Uber as a senior associate in strategy and planning. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And you're also like a coach or a mentor through this program through the SBA. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So I volunteer with SCORE, which is an affiliate of the Small Business Administration. SCORE is a 60-year-old national nonprofit in the United States. We have chapters in about 300 cities in the United States. Everybody who volunteers as a, score, as a coach with SCORE does so completely on a volunteer basis. And basically what we do is we just partner up with local small business entrepreneurs and help them however we can. 
So very concretely from my end, I have kind of a roster of folks who across very different life cycle stages of starting or growing their business, who I basically just talk to every two to four weeks, give them advice wherever I can, mostly just ask questions and try to act like a sounding board. Yeah. And yeah, I've been doing that for maybe about a year and a half now. What's your favorite thing about it? One of my favorite things is the breadth of industries and again, like business life cycle stages that you're dealing with. It's just very refreshing and a great learning experience for myself. So this is everything from like, hey, I'm trying to start a house cleaning business. Where do I start? How much should I invest in fixed assets? How do I go about like finding my first customers? And I personally don't have very much experience in that industry, but it's a very cool thought exercise to like just talk through some of the nuances of that. So you get everything from that to, hey, I'm running a consulting business that does like six or seven figures in revenue every year. How do I tap into this new industry or how do I prioritize new industries to enter? And then, yeah, so you, you have that whole matrix of very different stages of where the business is at across a bunch of different industries. And I find that to be just so fun and a very good learning experience to talk through all of those different combinations of businesses. Sounds like it. Seems like. You can take the entrepreneur out of the startup, but you can't take the startup out of the entrepreneur. So you've gone on this global learning experience, but it seems like you still got entrepreneurship in your blood. You still got your eyes set on starting your own business or acquiring oh, a business and being the CEO? For sure, for sure. So that's definitely been something that's been on my mind. I think the itch after starting and having to shut down our business that we were talking about a couple of years ago, yeah, that itch hasn't gone away. For folks who don't know how we know each other, we know one another through Nuts and Bolts, which is a program on search funds or acquisition entrepreneurship more broadly run by Karen Spencer. So that's how we met. So very Hi, shared interest in... Hello, Karen. Thanks for plugging that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just to give the plug to Nuts and Bolts and also just give some context sure. on our shared interest of acquisition entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that that's very much alive and well. There is certainly... And I, I do think... There's a special appeal in just these very pragmatic small businesses. Like they're just fundamentally great businesses. And on top of that, I do think that they do quite a bit in terms of economic development for their respective cities. So that's why I chose to coach in Philadelphia. That's where yeah. I'm from. That's where I grew up. Okay. So yeah, there's definitely, I think like an altruistic piece of, I think it, it's just good for the city, but then simultaneously, the types of questions that I'm dealing with for the most part when I'm going through these coaching sessions are like very pragmatic and very concrete. Hey, I need to incorporate X registration with like X, you know, chamber of Y in Philadelphia. Like what form do I fill out? Or like, how do I do my taxes? Or what are like the best marketing tools? So it's a very, very good forcing function for myself to also have to just learn through some of these things that like when you work at a large business, you don't think about all the time or like you're dealing with very abstract concepts of like new market entry. But like when you're a two person small business, I think you're very focused on like, what forms do I use to keep my employees, you know, properly on payroll, like those types of questions that without going through them yourself or being very involved in that type of community, you don't learn as much about. Yeah, sounds like it. And it seems like whether by design or accident, you've really pieced together a really good educational path for yourself to increase the probability of success second time around for yourself, but also just kind of seeing what's out there in terms of like different industries, different business models. Does anything like excite you these days? Are you still have your heart set on art or is there anything else that's exciting you? 
That's a very good question. That's something that I'm thinking through right now, quite frankly. And I don't have a super concrete answer to give you. Yeah, doing as much industry research as I can, just in terms of like reading reports myself. And that's also through the coaching that I was describing. You just learn so much about like different industries that you never knew existed. I'll give an example of one that like recently came onto my radar, like non-medical healthcare transportation is a business that like... Okay. Yeah. Basically taking folks to hospitals for non-emergency related treatment. That's generally something that's like done contractually with, I think, either particular hospitals. It's like a dedicated Uber kind of? Something like that. Yeah. And yeah, that's one that like came across my radar where I was like, wow, that's a really good business that I had no idea existed and would have not known unless like just hearing about it firsthand through kind of the small business community in Philadelphia. But yeah, no, long story short, very much thinking through what could be a promising business and also whether it makes more sense to start something or try to buy something that exists. I imagine there's a whole bunch of like legal kind of hurdles to jump through. But right after I said that, I was wondering like, why isn't Uber like doing something similar? Because you think about the travel time for an ambulance to get to like a place, there's probably like five Uber drivers right there already. Yeah, I think there's also like... Yeah, a bunch of contracting that you have to do with like your local government in order to qualify and also probably like prerequisites on like vehicle capacity and that sort of thing or like the type of business that can be operating that. It's not like the movies. You can't play hero. Yeah, basically. Yeah. No, that's cool. So is there anything you wanted to mention before we close out? Anything you want to draw attention to or anything we didn't cover, like we didn't uh, close the loop on? I will actually put out one shameless plug because I do feel like this might be relevant to a handful of folks who listen to the podcast. So SCORE, which I again mentioned, like the affiliate of the Small Business Administration that offers positions of coaching to small businesses in kind of the locality of where you live. I would put out a plug for folks who are kind of somewhat experienced within the entrepreneurial world who both want to give back to the communities and also just learn more about a variety of different business stages, industries, so on and so forth to apply to coach with score because we can always use more mentors. And yeah, I think it's a great way to give back while simultaneously learning a ton yourself. I'll put the link in the description if you could forward that to me. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You said like 300 cities around the US, right? Yeah. So odds are there's probably a chapter where folks live in the US. Nice. Well, Victor, it's a pleasure talking to you again and I look forward to seeing what's next for you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you again for the time. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Eyes on the horizon.